Welcome to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series, where throughout the world's greatest show at Expo 2020 Dubai, we'll be celebrating the best of the UK's creativity, innovation and culture, with special guests offering exclusive insight into ways we can innovate for a shared future. In this episode, host Nick DeLeon talks to Lucy Jones, the founder and CEO of Fora, a fashion lifestyle brand that primarily caters for people with disabilities. Welsh-born and now New York-based, Lucy has been widely lauded for her pioneering work and has been featured in numerous publications, including the New York Times, Vogue and Fashionista. You're listening to the Future Focus podcast series with me, Nick DeLeon from the Royal College of Art. In What Will We Wear? the series, I'm going to be in conversation with representatives from across the fashion sector. My guests include a model, an academic, one of the world's most innovative retailers, and today, an amazing designer. Today, I'm with Lucy Jones, a designer and founder of Fora, and we're going to be talking about how we can design for everyone. Now, Lucy, you've had uh, an amazing start to your career. I mean, back in 2015, there you were, a student at Parsons. You received an award at Parsons and then very quickly were in the Museum of Modern Art. A blink later, you were in the White House. This meteoric rise. Tell us about this. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you very much for having me. It's a, an honor to be here talking with you. Um, yeah, basically, I'm, of, I'm from Wales uh, and I moved to New York City to study fashion design. Uh, and I found myself in, I guess, what is arguably one of the world's best fashion design schools, Parsons. And uh, when I first got there, I'm coming from a small place uh, where there's more sheep than people. Uh, I realized that everyone was doing the same things. It was a very saturated industry. And uh, before I knew it, I was already trying to challenge the system a little bit. I just, sustainability was starting to be a topic within the classrooms. And I just felt like if I was going to do something, it had to count and it really had to be purposeful. And so um, it was one day I remember asking why we kept designing for a size six mannequin. And I just said, you know, this is not anyone in my life. Like, who is, who are these sizes? This mannequin doesn't really look like anyone. And uh, long story short, I started working with, uh, oh, well, I, I got into a conversation with a family member who has cerebral palsy uh, and hemiplegic cerebral palsy, which means hemi, meaning half. And he had a uh, paralysis along one side, meaning clothing was actually a bit of a challenge for him to get dressed because um, of his weakness. And I just thought, I cannot believe this. I am in one of the world's best design schools and we're not talking about disability and we're not talking about how we wear. Anyway, that's how I ended up. That's how I got into it. That's how I got into it. Yeah, and it's amazing inspiration from the, the family. And when we talk about design for all, you, you're, you're talking about very much designing for people with different physical um, abilities, different cognitive, different emotional Clearly, your family member was an inspiration for this. But, you know, you must have looked around and said, I want to be different. I, you wanted to make your mark. What was it that was fueling that desire as well? Because it could have been just so easy to go along with everyone else. Yeah, I think it was, 
I felt a lack of motivation because I was seeing the same, for example, it was the same skirt. It happened to be trending or it was this uh, skinny, you know, tailored skirt. And I I said, if I saw that skirt again, I'm going to poke my eyes out (laughs) because it, it just felt like that. Why are we putting this repetition out on the runway again and again? And I think it was for me, like, that's not challenging enough for me. I can do so much more with my brain. I can do so much more with my skills. And I think the world deserves more uh, thought in the process, not just the same, same, same over and over again. It was honestly that it was. uh, And also the other thing is the lack of diversity. And I know diversity and inclusion has become quite a buzzword nowadays or buzz phrase. And uh, I think for me back in 2011, which was when I first started thinking about this, uh, my class were pretty much, we were all the same. We were like 18 white kids uh, in yeah. in this design. <laughs> and I just was like, well, there we go. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was that really just like, I really pr- would prefer to learn from other people and hear from different backgrounds and yeah. So in focusing on people with disability, I mean, what, what is the current offer and, and what was frustrating you about what people were having to wear? What was the, What were the issues for them? I'm intrigued it's because your clothes and people need to go and have a look at Fora and all the things you're doing. We'll give you some links later to be able to do that. But tell us about what the offer is and how you transform that offer. Yeah, I think uh, the biggest misconception was um, disability was, was, or at least when I was in fashion school, if you typed in disability clothing, um, you got linked to, uh, I guess, aging. And it wasn't really, it didn't, it was almost like there was assumption that disability was for the older population. It was like, oh, you can't be young and have a disability. Uh, And I, and I thought that was interesting, but what was on offer? And it was, I, I will say as a, as a bratty student that cared so much about image and aesthetics, when you typed in Oh, you Googled uh, disability clothing and you were met with a Velcro polar fleece poncho. Uh, I just couldn't believe that anyone would buy that for anyone or anyone would want to wear that. Uh, And I think for me, I was like, this is inhumane that we would dress people in this. So that's what it was at the time. It was just Velcro everything. Uh, Velcro, Velcro, Velcro. And everyone hates Velcro. Um, So Not everyone hates Velcro, I should add. And there are other ways of fastening garments too, that we should say. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I, I I was against Velcro just because I have a cat, a very fluffy cat. So for me, it was like no more Velcro because all the fur from my cat would get into Velcro. So it was a personal uh, dislike, obviously. But yeah, anyway, that was the offering. It was, it was uh, not a lot of design, love and passion. And then um, nowadays, of course, fast forward a couple of years, uh, it is extraordinary the the changes uh, and and you know the waves that have been made uh, people really looking into uh, adaptive or disability and inclusion so yeah it's definitely a different landscape now and when you went out and did your research what did you learn from the people what what, what was their attitude what frustrations did they have about the offer that was there or how you go about buying clothes um, and what were the day to day issues they found with clothes that are made for for other people. So what I did was I put an ad out uh, on a, a website that's called Craigslist. Um, and it's just, uh, it's almost like the yellow pages. And uh, so you you put an ad out and, and I just said, you know, I'm a fashion design student looking to collaborate and hear from people who have disabilities. I had no idea what I was going to <laughs> get into. Um, 
but I had these overwhelming emails and um, people who um, were blind or visually impaired. I had people who were amputees, people who had medical conditions. And so when I sat down, I, I, I had this group, this interview, and there was, uh, I think I would say there was about 12 wheelchair users in the room the first time. And I would ask questions. Um, you know, do you have any, you know, difficulties, um, you know, putting on clothes was the first basic question I asked. No one had the same response. And that was the first, <laughs> that was when I realized, oh, okay, <laughs> um, this is, this is going to be really difficult actually, um, for me to, to catch up. And it was everyone around the room had different ways of dressing, um, because, out of necessity would maneuver their bodies in different ways um, to make it work for them. And I found that fascinating because I would say the way we move dictates how clothes are designed. And I thought, well, if I learned, you know, how people moved their, you know, their own ways of moving, yes. that would dictate my design. And I just found that just really fascinating as a designer. But yeah, everyone from closures to um, fabric choices, things not being breathable from in the rain, what happens to not just the, their, their clothes in the rain. If you can imagine people who are seated and use a wheelchair, their laps are getting drenched. So then they spend the rest of their day with like a completely wet, you know, thighs. So there's, there's lots of things that I had never considered and, and things like their wheelchair even breaking down because it wasn't, um, waterproof just like it was madness to me to sit there and listen to to just so many things and yeah it was also daunting because I just thought oh my goodness um where do I start you must have found so much diversity you know it, it's it's fine when you know you're, you're able-bodied. Um, we recognise there's a huge amount of diversity, but when you're dealing with and trying to serve the needs of people with disability, you find that they are incredibly diverse in their needs. I mean, at the Royal College of Art, we've had the Helen Hamlin Centre for over two decades, and before that, um, we've had a focus on inclusive design going back to you know all the way back to the 80s at the RCA. So this is a, a a topic that's familiar to us, but it's so rare to see people picking it up in fashion and realizing the diversity of needs of that community. Did you get people working with you to actually co-design these clothes as well? Because I assume that people are really creative and they want to have their share of all of this too. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest learnings, I came in very naive, I would say quite ignorant, and I had ideas and generalizations of what I thought was going to happen. And I could have just thrown that out the window because all my assumptions were wrong. I, I basically was a baby. I had no idea. And one woman who I worked with, Ronnie Ellen Raymond, who has become a dear friend of mine and a mentor. Um, what I loved most about the learnings was I didn't, I originally went in like I was trying to solve a problem. And then very quickly, I learned I'm not solving a problem. I'm not trying to fix anything. I'm just embracing a culture that I didn't know about. And I think that was the most important shift in my thinking. So when I was working with Ronnie, she kept saying, give me the wow factor. I want the wow factor. And so when me and Ronnie were in conversation, a lot of the times we were talking about 
historic and traditional references in fashion of what the focus points are that are attractive. And it was always, you know, the neckline or the waistline. But when me, me and Ronnie were talking, we were focusing on her elbows and her arms on armrests. And we were like, this is a focus point. Why? Like, let's make this our wow factor. And so, yes, Ronnie and I, that you know, she inspired and and really was, you know, when when we were working and say I was dressing her and and I was just annoyed with, you know, how inaccessible the clothes were. Yeah. Ronnie would say, put a zipper here. And, and then we would have these moments when I was like, yes, a zipper there makes total sense because it's familiar. What else is interesting is design dialogue uh, and and you know, presenting things that functionally are brilliant, but they don't look very good, perhaps. And so when sometimes when I'm working with people, I will present a number of options of things that I think are functionally brilliant, but no one would ever use them because they they just don't look good. So what we would do is to try and, you know, have that design conversation is have these inspirational images of like Apple or Lego or like, you know, things that are really, you know, creatively inspiring and say, imagine functionally this, but it looks like this. And they're like, oh yeah, 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 give me that. So then we would work through the meetings in that way. And I found that just really exciting to, to be having these dialogues and, and, and asking those questions. I suppose it's a very different kind of design process as well when you're working in this space. I mean, it's something we, we experience as well as we design products and vehicles and other areas. But in fashion, it's particularly intriguing because you know, you, you, you're changing your role from a kind of godlike figure that's kind of bringing to the world something that comes from your artistic, um, cultural uh, energy. And you're in, instead becoming much more of a kind of midwife to other people's ideas. You don't have to conceive it all. You know, you're, you're bringing other people's ideas into play, combining the kind of functional and the visual, the wow factor as part of it. Um, did you sometimes get some tensions in that? as well, because as a designer, you know, you, you've got your view of the way it should be, but you're sitting there with the people who are going to be the recipients and they've got a view that functionally they need this, that you'd never recognize. And they want more wow than you're ready to put in. And they've got an idea that perhaps is a bit less wow than you would want. <laughs> that always happens. I think the trick is just to navigate that. I, I would say what was really hard is as designers, I mean, we naturally have egos of... <laughs> oh, I can make things look good. And I have, you know, my own idea of aesthetics. I learned to draw the line between functionality. And I guess this is an argument in itself, but I learned that the function did have to dictate, dictate a lot of the form. So I knew in those meetings that um, I knew where I stood in terms of what what my job was in terms of delivering aesthetics. So I would every now and again know that I, I do have a role. My role is, yes, this is what how you want it to function and this is and this is exactly as you would want it and exactly as you envisaged it functionally. But let me take it to, you know, what the the wow factor is and that's my job. So I think, you know, making sure everyone kind of understands like where the designer comes in and then where, and, and also I will say, you know, a lot of it is, it depends on the project, but if I'm working with someone and I am conveying their vision, I'm not going in with an ego. I am not going in saying no. this is the only <laughs> way, of course not. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting. It, it, there are tensions. There are a lot of tensions, but it, all good creative tensions. 
But we've kind of moved from a world where we used to talk about design for disability into inclusive design to universal design in the sense that it's not just people in wheelchairs today who are sitting down. You know, some of the things that you've created, some of the elements that you've put into garments, if I'm sitting at a Zoom screen, you wouldn't know whether I'm in a wheelchair. You wouldn't know whether I'm, you know, a six foot six athlete. So how do you see the kind of crossover as well? Have you found people saying, oh, I'd like that when I'm just doing my Zoom calls? That would make it easier for me to do all these meetings online. Absolutely. So part of the approach on that note, this standing sitting and sitting standing or, you know, just constant sitting is basically how... So I'm just going to plug one of the bags that we've designed has a short strap. The strap is designed for being used in the seated position. So sit down and the strap is very, very short. So when you stand up, people are saying, oh, the strap, it, I wish this was longer. But I will say this is actually it's designed for the seated position. And people are like, wait, I can put my arm here. And they prefer how it feels when they're standing. And then, of course, love it when they're sitting down because it's not flapping everywhere. So there's there's always like moments where we we find this this interesting uh, cross between sitting and standing. But when I'm on Zoom, of course, one of the biggest um, challenges that people are having is that the waistband cutting into their gut, literally cutting (laughs) into your stomach. And of course, we all dress for the top and then we're wearing sweatpants or, you know, casual loungewear on the bottom. And I think that is really interesting because um, people are now starting to really, really experience what uh, what has been the offering for wheelchair users for so many years. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people are like, oh, wait, I could really use those trousers now. And yeah, it's interesting. So do you think there's going to be some kind of crossover from some of your designs into kind of the more universal approach to clothes design. I mean, you saw it with maternity wear. Yeah. And to be honest, like, I think it's a genius idea to have a stretchy, uh, a stretchy top on the jeans, especially now when we're all sitting down. There's so many crossovers. I do see that happening. Yes. Now, tell us a little bit more about the accessories because, you know, and, and a little bit more about Fora because, you know, you've created more than just a kind of fashion label with Fora. I mean, you've almost, it's kind of like a movement that you, you've got going. So tell us a little bit more about Fora, the, the company you founded for which you're the creative director and CEO, and some of the different kinds of products that it offers. I almost started talking about this earlier. I'm really glad you brought this up because Fora, um, of course, I have my name, Lucy Jones. And typically in fashion, one would assume that you use your own name and that becomes the label. But of course, it would make no sense for me to use my name. Also, because there are so many Lucy Joneses in Wales. Uh, It's a very common name. Um, Although in America, it's apparently not. But anyhow, I think, you know, Fora, even the name itself had to mean something. And Fora, the word is Latin plural uh, for the word forum. And the way in which I design and the way in which we started the process of designing products has always been, we start with a conversation like a forum. And so, yes, Fora encompasses more than just design. It really is like a constant dialogue. Of course, I, I started with wheelchair users predominantly because that's where I started my design uh, research. And what we did was we designed an accessories line specifically for wheelchair users, but not exclusive to. And I thought that was really important. It was really important for the disability community to have something that was theirs, but of course, not just be further segregated and siloed. So it was really important to show that we were creating 
this brand that was all encompassing. So yeah, these accessories, it's an accessory line. If you can imagine you're a wheelchair user and you're using your two hands and you're pushing and uh, you're, you're wheeling along and then you get a Starbucks or you get a coffee and you have nowhere to put your coffee. So what we did was we designed a, an attachment. Um, it's made of metal and it affixes to the lower tubes of a, a manual wheelchair. And this attachment becomes a building block to a full, array, like a full range and array of accessories such as cup holders bags, uh, bottle holders, and it's all interchangeable. It has a magnetic interface. So basically you can dock your bag and when you're not using your bag, you can dock your, your coffee and yeah, people interchange the goods. Some people have multiple attachments on their chair. They're building it, their, their lifestyle around them. And yeah. And so of course the bags are, can be used vertically so they can be docked on a, on a wheelchair vertically. They can be worn on the body horizontally. So it's very interchangeable and it's just, yeah, you basically use it however best suits your lifestyle. Uh, so that was our first product line and it was, uh, it was received really well. And now of course we're expanding our product line. I'm just thinking about other uses of that. It sounds perfect for kind of clipping onto your um, beach chair, you know, as you go down to, to take in a bit of sun or whatever it might be. Um, or gosh, I, I can imagine taking one of those to the theater to uh, hold that glass or something else as well, a clip to my seat. Um, have, you, have you seen any extraordinary uses of these? I have seen so many. And I think during the pandemic, it got even more creative. Uh, the, the, the best part of this job, honestly, is when you get those emails from customers or you get these pictures through. And the reason we, we brought a bottle holder out was because we saw that the intake of alcohol was so vast during COVID. <laughs> So people were sending in pictures of their cup holder holding a beer or like a vodka or a gin or a cocktail. And we were just like, this is brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant. Um, and there's humor behind it because it's just like, this is what people want to do with the products. Um, so we came out with more, you know, uh, variations of, of those products. But we've seen people put their gardening shears in the cup holder to so that the shears aren't on their laps when they're in the garden doing ah. some gardening. We've seen people holding paintbrushes and pencils um, while they're doing their artwork. We've seen kids at school, you know, with, with their sports bottle going between classes. So yeah, we've seen all sorts. I suppose this gives you more fuel for your own creative thinking as well. It's just having this really close relationship with the people who are using the, the products of Fora. Now, the design process that you created is something quite special. Well, tell us a little bit about your time at Parsons. There you were examining and exploring what is it you, that you yourself are doing. The output wasn't just the garments, but it was about a process too. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, of course, when I started meeting with all these individuals, I realized that uh, there was no one size fits all, of course, and there was no uh, cookie cutter approach. Um, but the one thing that I had the biggest challenge with was when we're at school or any designer will approach, I, I said this uh, briefly, but a standing body. So the size six standing mannequin, it's a very basic form. And that is what gets used to create any basic garment. It's called a body block or a garment sloper, they call it. And it's basically, for those who don't know what a block is, it's like a t-shirt torso without, um, without sleeves. So it's just a very basic vest almost. And so what, what I realized was we cannot put this basic 
block on a seated person because it just does not fit. It doesn't, it just falls off the body. It's like four inches too long. The neckline hangs down, nothing about it works. So the very basic assumption was, oh my goodness, these standing measurements just cannot be used in this work. So I have to create my seated measurements. I have to create my seated standard blocks. And I think that was the big eureka moment for me. It took me six months to get to that place. For the first six months I was scrambling around, not knowing really where I was going with this. I The output was to create a six look collection, but I realized I cannot create a six look collection if the entire process is wrong. Like it doesn't suit the process. So I created, uh, first I had realized I had to teach and create the, the very basics of what the seated body would be in fashion. Uh, and then I realized, wait, I don't want everyone to have to start from zero. Yes. I really want everyone to know this. So I realized I should put this into a book and show everyone how I got to this point. Cause I don't want generations to come after and all these students to be doing the same you know almost like wasting time it's no I've wasted six months let me show you not <laughs> what to do uh so so yeah I started this seated measurement guide and then I created my basic blocks and then from there I I wanted to show designers and students alike how we can change our basic blocks into seated ones so everything from basic sleeve patterns to trouser patterns to you know jackets and I just yeah that was the outcome and it I called the book seated design and the the pattern pieces were called advantage blocks and my argument was we're creating an advantage to this pattern this basic pattern and so these advantage blocks are what you could use to to create seated design and that's what I presented of course I didn't expect uh, I expected people to be very confused by the fact I was coming up with a book. Uh, but no, everyone embraced it. I was able to present it on a, a stage in front of incredible designers and everyone was very excited about it. Well, we're beginning to see why you have this kind of meteoric rise now um, you know, from student through to the Museum of Modern Art. And what was it at the Museum of Modern Art they were most excited about? Was it about your process? Was it about the outcome of the clothes? Was it about you? Tell us how all of that happened as well. So the best part of being able to present in a room, like an intimate room with these amazing judges and critics is you get your your moment to show, <laughs> you know, the, the industry, who you are, what you're about, and, and they get to learn your name. But I think the most interesting part about that opportunity is you're able to let them take away a piece of, of what you've done. And so what I did was I printed only 10 books because that's all I had the money for. I printed 10 books and I handed them out to the judges thinking, I hope they will go away and learn and remember my name, maybe. That would be great. Yeah. One of the judges went away and somehow it ended up in Mo in the lap of Paola Antonelli at MoMA. So <laughs> that, I still don't know who gave it to her, <laughs> but that is what dreams are made of. Thanks, thanks whoever did that for me, because I get the email from Paola that's like, we would like you to come in and chat with us. And she just was in awe of the whole process. Yes, she was She was so interested in the research. She was so, she got every second of it. And, and so I remember just sitting there thinking I was, you know, going for an interview or a chat. I wasn't actually sure what I was there for, to be completely honest. Um, and 
I didn't even need to say anything. She was just like telling her whole team about me. And uh, I couldn't believe that she was even talking about me um, in the room. And then she just said, will you design something for us? Oh, fantastic. (laughs) And and I was like, sure. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's really. And then of course, from that moment, the book even landed somewhere else. It landed in the Mad Museum at the same time. And the Hazel Clark, Dr. Hazel Clark and Hilary Laminen were putting on this site-specific fashion after fashion exhibition and they were saying the same thing but hazel had attended one of my presentations had seen me speaking about it so yeah it just after that it was uh you know all these people sharing and it was very kind I just love the, 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 not only the kind of the story of how you kind of develop this from looking at this model and saying, you know, I, I just can't work with a mannequin like this. I've got to rethink it. And if it's going to take me six months, it shouldn't take anybody else six months. They should be able to work this way. Then you kind of start documenting all of this. Then you start documenting your process overall as a designer. Now, what, what's interesting about many fields of design, if you're designing products, you know, you, you you don't go and just look at every other product like yours as part of your research. You go and talk to users. You go and immerse yourself in it. So research can be all about thinking about how I'm going to immerse myself in that world, how I'm going to engage with the users, engage with that community. And in fashion, you've really, really done that. And then the second bit is when you've kind of distilled that. Um, and looking at both those kind of functional needs and emotional needs and how it's going to work in practice, you've gone to the next stage of inviting people in to be part of the creative process. So it's not been you know, the designer working on their own. You've been part of that as well. Now, in your documentation of this, it would be fantastic, and I don't know if that already is the case, but to really create this kind of um, the, the new fashion design manual, how to refashion fashion, how to transform the fashion design process, because this isn't just relevant for people with, you know, a physical impairment, sensory impairment, cognitive impairment. It, it, it's valuable for absolutely everybody, isn't it? I mean, do you, do you think Fora could bring that forward? Do you think that's something you can, can do as part of your mission, not just the outcome of the clothes, but a new process that you can offer? Absolutely. I realized, uh, I mean, so early on, that's the the whole reason I guess I'm here doing what I'm doing, but uh, that we have such value because of our process, because it is just so natural to us doing what we're doing, that I realized one of our biggest values is not just the products, it's rather our process of doing. And instead, really, part of Fora would be going into other companies and taking what we have and teaching other companies to do what we do. Because, um, I mean, it's a very hard to teach something that comes so naturally <laughs> and trying to uh, distill it. But yes, there is there are so many outcomes of creating manuals and creating you know, how-tos and, and going into other organizations and, and showing that. Um, what was interesting about Parsons was I created this manual and the year after, the amount of students who created manuals. <laughs> um, it's brilliant because it, it, it created all this uh, more of a culture of sharing in an industry that isn't used to it uh, or has historically not been one that that wants to share their ideas. So it was really fascinating to see that we're already embracing that that culture. 
Yeah, and also making sure that everybody reads these <laughs> yeah, as well. Also. I mean, you know, again, you don't want them to have to go through your process where you were having to, you know, learn and just pioneer. Now you've learned and pioneered. We must kind of disseminate that knowledge. So everyone, by the way, that's listening to this podcast, no doubt will want a little piece of the four of process now so that we can uh, follow in the footsteps of Lucy. Now, I, I guess that made you really popular with the other students because suddenly... <laughs> <laughs> you were catapulted, not just to the, you know, the front of the class, but you were, you, know, you were catapulted all the way through to the museums of the great museums of the world, the White House. What, tell us what went on in the White House. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, this is actually a really great story. So I, I'm one of those people that uh, is always still so shocked by everything. Nothing. Oh, goodness. Everything surprises me. I, I almost can't believe it that we're even talking about this. It's very weird to hear. But when the White House, um, when that happened, it came via email. <laughs> and so I thought it was a spam email. It went and I put it in my junk folder because I thought they were trying to get my passport details or my visa, or I thought someone was after my social security number. I just didn't. I thought, why would the White House just send an email? Like, that's exactly what went through my mind. And then I had a call from someone else who's in the industry who has been designing, you know, with people who have disabilities, uh, another uh, a disabled woman, she calls me up and she says, are you going to this? And I was like, that's real? Like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I have not, I did not RSVP because I junked it. So I pulled it out of the folder, rereading it, screamed, uh, called my parents, told them they couldn't believe it. They also thought it was a spam and to be careful. Uh, and then I, I, the more I asked, you know, the community is small, so I'm asking around and everyone knows about it. So it was called the Design for All uh, conference. And it was basically people who are making waves or really, you know, engaging in this topic. We were all invited to the White House uh, for a, a showcase and celebration. And uh, it was incredible. I had, a, I, I uh, took a picture of a myself with a painting of Obama because it was under the Obama administration at the time. And I was, yeah, I couldn't believe I was standing there. Sustainability, I know, is something as well you're equally passionate about. Could you tell us a little bit about how, you know, you, you feel that the work that you're doing right now and the work that you intend to do in the future might also address this, you know, an industry that is, is, is noted for some sustainability challenges? Yeah. So before I started Fora, I was lucky enough to work under Eileen Fisher, who is known for being a sustainable American designer and just an all-round incredible person. Uh, so my job there was to um, really think about the entire, you know, I, I guess we talk about circular economy and cradle to cradle, but really that's what I was doing as my first job straight out of uh, college, uh, university. And so um, with that knowledge, it's very hard to then go away from something that it, you've been immersed in and you've learned about the dangers of the most polluting industry or one of the most polluting industries, which is fashion, and, and then start something that's going to just further add to a problem. It's very hard to, to not be thinking about it. I think one of the most amazing discoveries for, for Fora was the fact that this industry, the, the, the wheelchair industry, because if you imagine my one of my other um, clients, I guess, uh, are the wheelchair manufacturers. And so when you learn about the process of what it takes to develop a wheelchair, you learn that wheelchairs 
a person who is, who is using a wheelchair will have them for five to seven years. And if they're lucky, they'll have them for up to 15 years. So this is not something that is thrown away. It is something that is updated and upkept. And I already thought that that takes you back to the make, do and mend movement, which is people are learning how to upkeep their their devices and their products. So when people are buying for attachments, we get ourselves into a very interesting situation where we've made something that's meant to last. Um, so then how do you make money? Yes, that's also the tricky side of things. <laughs> Once they've got the product, they don't really need to rebuy another one unless they want more. Um, so, or unless they're putting them all around the house, who knows? But it's 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 products that are meant to to last, that are timeless in design. They're not a trend. We've spent a lot of time and resources developing this, knowing what the industry is. Um, so yeah, I think for us, it's this upkeep of you have you you enter a system uh, of quality product, and that people are looking after. And they are just constantly using the products and interchanging them. So I think moving forward, um, you know, it's 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 interesting because there's always the dilemma of how how does one <laughs> you know make a profitable business and be sustainable. Um, I think this idea of uh, take backs and the way you design products using the same material so that they can be recycled and used again is something that we're looking into. I find that really interesting. But yeah, it's all in the wheelhouse, pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's certainly going to be a good way into the circular economy as well. Uh, and great to see you in this role. Now, if you're going to look forward a few years from now, where, where do you see Fora? Where do you see yourself? And where do you see this movement that you're so much part of? I, I think it's so amazing to hear you say movement because I think when I started this, I knew I'm a people person. I'm a very collaborative person. And I knew that Fora was just one side and one aspect of this community. Um, but it takes all of us to make a movement. And so where I see Fora, I see Fora positioned with other brands, um, like-minded designers, like-minded brands. I see disabled artists and designers, but I really do see uh, a store of the future. Uh, I know we touched on this before, Nick, but I really want to see uh, an Apple-like store of products that are accessible, that you can go in, try them, really experience it. And and also to break the, the tensions of, you know, you do not just acquire a disability when you're older. You can be uh, you can acquire a disability at any point in your life, whether you're born with a disability, you can acquire one any time of your life. And I think it's to make sure that people are really embracing accessible design as, as, as very integral to the way our society is made up. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, not, not seeing it just as kind of prosthetics for people, but actually desirable things for absolutely everyone. You know, I, I want that jacket that I can sit in when I'm in this chair on the Zoom calls. I want, yes. you know, not just because it's designed for someone in a wheelchair, it's designed for us all. It really you know, is. That clip on. Brilliant. I've got to have one of those, you know. And I think there should be, I would love to see like a criteria, almost, you know, like design stores, like the most our design store there's a criteria of products that get into the design store and i would love to see that evaluation or like a checkpoint of what the product does for or, or why it was you know worthy of this store and and to really appreciate it in that way and i, I think that would uh, that would really be exciting to see for the design world and for consumers alike customers alike 
Well, Lucy, it's been absolutely delight to talk to you uh, this afternoon. You know, we've we've covered so much ground. You know, from the the world of inclusive design, the new design process that's required, the the marvelous new kind of fashion and fashion accessories you're creating for people that combine great functional need and real wow factor. But the thing that strikes me is you, your immense enthusiasm and passion, which no doubt is going to propel Fora, you know, onto everyone's uh, agenda uh, and make us all think about some of the really important points you've made this afternoon. So thank you so much, Lucy. Thanks for listening to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series. Look out for more podcasts in the series or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want to stay up to date with all things UK Pavilion, links to our social media channels can be found in the episode description.